Welcome to I've Never Read Discworld. I'm Andy Luke, and I haven't read very much Discworld. I'm PJ Hart. I've read much of Discworld, including this one, which is Andy. It is Eric, and it's uh, book nine, I believe, um, published by Victor Galanz Corgi in 1990 as an illustrated version with the Josh Kirby. Um, and I've been reading that version. That is a large book. It is big bumper library fun. So for those of you who aren't watching our low resolution video offering, like how, how big is that? Is that like a trade paperback? Like what? It's at least A4. I happen to have some A4 here. Oh, here we go. Visual comparison um, occurring as we speak. It's actually, it's just a little smaller than A4, yeah. Interesting. Cool. Okay. Heckheads out there. Uh, indeed. The reason I ask, um, Andy, as you've just heard, has read the illustrated version on both readings, first reading and second reading. I read the unillustrated version. So again, like, this time round, I read it on Kindle, as I almost always do. First time round, the details are lost, lost to history, unfortunately. So that's interesting. Yeah. Like it's still like when you're holding it in your hand, it, it doesn't look like a an insubstantial short story. It looks like a, a sizable tome. Yeah, you know? I can imagine fitting in with uh, the Hergé Tintin volumes, the Asterix books. Yeah, okay, I get that, yeah. Um, let's let's go into the, the back cover synopsis. Um, go for it. You've heard of Faust? This is Eric. There's a difference. Eric is 14, lives on the famed and magical disc world, and is the first ever demonology hacker. Fortunately, he doesn't succeed in raising any devils, but he does raise Rincewind, the most incompetent wizard in the universe, and the luggage, the world's most dangerous travel accessory. When Eric turns him loose on an unprotected world, the idea is that Rincewind will grant him this three rather adolescent wishes. You know, the usual three. Live forever, rule the world, Meet the most beautiful woman who ever lived. Simple, really. Getting marooned at the dawn of time, changing the future and meeting history's most embarrassing god is only the start. Creating life on the Discworld is a mere detail. Because Rincewind ends up going through hell. Literally. It'll never be the same again. That is a lot of blurb, considering how kind of te teasery some of the other ones have been, you know? There's a lot of the novel covered in that. Yeah, book. yeah, yeah. Thinking about the guards, guards one, you know, that, that gave very little away. It was just like, hey, dragons, Discworld, go for it, you know, uh, which is, I mean, that's all you need as far as I'm concerned, as you know. It, um, it, I had never read Faust. Um, I guess my entry point would have been um, Christian mythology. I mean, when I was growing up in the 80s, we were subjected to a lot of American preachers encouraging us to play music backwards um that uh satan was out to get us because he loved us he, he loved our souls satan did of course um and he delicious souls. To, uh, to like use them for i don't know loyalty points or diddling or something i mean it can only be one of those two things not nothing else absolutely um interesting yeah so for me i guess like i vaguely remember like Marlowe would have been kind of referenced in English literature classes, you know, about Shakespeare, but we 
we didn't have to read him. So we never had to read Faust, but we would have been like vaguely aware of its existence in that context, in the, the Christopher Marlowe context. As that relates to Shakespeare in those like really dry, boring English literature lessons of yesteryear. So yeah, and I would have interestingly, like I would have read this book around that time for the first time. So like it might it always has this weird connection to my like I guess that's key stage three level education. Mm. The fact that there are all these references to like, yeah, English literature and classics and stuff like that. So it's always going to remind me of school <laughs> in a weird way. Uh, but we'll, we'll get to that a little bit. I'm interested to hear your first impressions. Um, so I remember seeing er uh, Eric about a lot and I've seen Mort about a lot. And those are... Uh, what I think of as the iconic Discworld books, I guess it's more about design than anything else. Mm, um, there is there is a big one. Um, I'll actually, I'll just put it out now, Jingo. I remember yeah. being very aware of Jingo because the advertising stand was by Jingo. Mm. Um, mm. Oh, yeah, that's good. So there's cer certain Discworld books I, I remember coming quite clearly, and Eric was one of them. And I had certain high expectations going with Cratchit's name and honestly the start's brilliant the ending's brilliant the middle kind of um hangs about a bit um let's see what have I written on my little little man's data pad um the notes have got a lot more that. professional oh sorry then I, I said the notes have got more professional and then I talked over them which was extremely unprofessional so sorry go go ahead I I thought the midsection of the book was telling stories that we we kind of seen before already mm -hmm. um particularly in the color of magic and the light fantastic um but i do like a good novella i like a shorter read i think that's the way things are going to be heading the whole george R. R. martin um harry potter omnibuses are behind us if you think about classical literature we didn't have those big stonking doorstep sized books um you only really got those, got those in more recently and like when you're coming to collected works of authors. And I think with, with internet reading, I think we're headed to the novellas. So I do like a novella. This yeah, one felt a that. bit like a long, short story. Yeah. Um, and as, as I said, I read Josh Kirby. And Josh Kirby absolutely effing knocks it out of the park here. He is on absolute top form. Yeah, I think he outshines Pratchett. In this interesting setting. that is interesting um which is okay. yeah and i i'm yeah i'm still i'm still green but you know i'm making out with with a bit of uh a bit of credit yeah absolutely and i think you made some really good points there it was he is it's just i forget the comparison i mean he is just doing some incredible work um with his his double page spreads just adding whole new dimensions onto this uh, this world that is being built in sections mm. i was perusing the artwork um just for the first time there before we came on actually interestingly having read the book twice but never really looked at the illustrations and getting to see kirby's work flat i guess as, as opposed to being wrapped around a book because like it's so dense that the illustrations are the cover illustrations i mean are so dense that like you're always going to miss things when you're like looking at it in the 3d object you know there's like details hidden on the spine and stuff like that so yeah to see those big double page spreads 
was really cool. And I say that, like, as you know, and as the list, regular listeners know, like, I'm fairly ambivalent when it comes to the Kirby illustrations, to be honest. But I think this was an interesting experiment, certainly, in terms of doing, like, an illustrated Discworld book in the novella length. I, I totally agree. The Kirby's artwork is limited and inhibited by banners, by spines. And, and when you see it... And yeah, just because I have this in front of me. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, um, for the video. Um... When that's laid out like that, that's the proper size. It it should be, um, like you know, it it shouldn't be squashed away down to this tiny wee thing. And um, I think that's part of the issue with with Josh Kirby, is that he is he's crammed. And this was a guy. We're going to be talking a bit more about him in a minute with a wee bit of a deep dive. Or actually, let's just go into it now. Yeah. So he used he used oils. He used acrylics. Um, he was uh, watercolors, gouache. So he liked to like layer stuff on top of one another. He he liked oils so they dry quickly. They could be manipulated and layered. Um, and he was very much he was very different from your your standard science fiction and fantasy cover artist used that sort of airbrushed look because uh, Kirby came for this sort of old masters classical thing I mean he, he counts his three main influences as Hieronymus Bosch um, is famous for his fantastic imagery and religious concepts and narratives mm-hmm. um, Pieter Bruegel whose religious and mythological depictions expand perspective of reality again so we're, we're seeing reality, religion, and myth and story. And then Frank Brongan was an avant-garde artist, notable for bodily coloured murals. And I mean, yeah. As an art philistine, I'm just like really glad that I recognised at least one of those three artists. I was like, yes, that's, as long as I can recognise one. Who did I'm you still get? in the conversation, Bosch. Bosch, yeah. <laughs> Me too. After that, I was lost, but yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing a few Josh Kirby murals around Belfast to be honest. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, um, just a wee bit of background. Born ni- born twenty seventh of November, nineteen twenty eight, as Ronald William Kirby, uh, raised in Liverpool, um, found science fiction early in the Modern World magazine, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers. Um, he enrolled. Do you want to know what age he was when he enrolled in the Liverpool City School of Art? Shall I guess? 25. Uh, 14. What? Yeah, right. Wow. They had a junior school. Um, he then 14 and he went to the senior school. So he was there until he was 20. He did the senior school on a uh, scholarship of £45 a year. Um, he was asked to paint the Lord Mayor of Liverpool in 1950, but he did the commission and then decided wasn't really for him portraiture so he started to get into movie posters um return of the jedi beastmaster crawl the life of brian um there is a life of brian josh kirby poster i've seen that one i think yeah oh i am i'm gonna slip that in for you on a video if i can if i can find it i might Um, be misremembering it but i can i can picture a yeah i can picture a monty python poster in that style but Hopefully I haven't imagined it. Uh, if not, we just cut this out. It's fine. Um, 
he was he made his real name making making book covers and worked with a lot of lot uh, Asimov, um, Stephen Briggs, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Alfred Hitchcock, Ian Fleming. Oh, he has a cover for the first pan paperback of Moonraker. Wow. Josh Kirby created James Bond. How about That's that? Cool. That um, cool. Ursula Le Guin, Robert Rankin, Joe's Verne, H.G. Wells. So uh, one of the writers he worked with a lot, had a lot of admiration for was Ray Bradbury. Wow. Um, he illustrated three of Bradbury's books. Um, and in fact, on two of them, The Illustrated Man and Fahrenheit 451, um, they put them out with Corgi commissioned them with Kirby covers and then second commissioned with Kirby covers. So there's multiple covers by Kirby on those no three books. Um, and um, there's sort of talking, we've mentioned religion and art. He did a little bit of work for L. Ron Hubbard. Ah, one well. of his peak Scientology books. Definitely not a Scientologist himself. It does um, sound like he was moving in that world. I mean, those were like real titans of the kind of genres in, in those days, I guess. So like, it kind of makes sense for like L. Ron Hubbard to be in the mix there, I suppose. Prior, prior to Discworld in the 70s, the, the religion thing came again. Um, he was approached by uh, people who wanted to make a science fiction version of the Christian story. Um, and they, they initially give Josh Kirby free hand to uh, pursue the I Guy series. Um, and he, he created a portfolio and then they came back to Kirby and they said, would you write this series for us? Um, the um oh they asked him to write it did you say they so? asked him to write it yes interesting and he's um, like not like not having written i guess what nothing by this point or uh, 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 as far as i'm aware apparently it was portentous rubbish <laughs> <laughs> says a, a known academic um uh it featured the image people an anagram of magi and the crucifixion of a savior spaceman called Jesus. Ah, brilliant. Love it. I mean, yeah, that's what, to be fair, like if if a bunch of crazy Christians give me some money to just like churn out a space version of the New Testament, you're not going to actually, you're going to put any effort into it really, are you? <laughs> you know, you're just going to well, take the money and turn out. Uh, Josh was, became pretty obsessed with it. <sighs> and, it was an 81 collection of Voyage of the Eye Guy. But I, I wonder if um, working with Terry wasn't his chance to sort of absolve himself or to work out some some issues, given the, you know, the similarities. And, you know, there's a big world building thing that is tackling these themes. And, I mean, it takes us, it's a pretty much direct road through to Eric, which is. Yeah, good point. Yeah, really good point. Just a, a, another quick sort of a bit on biography. We really should get it straight into the book. Um, it's a short book, so let's just, you know, book, give us yeah. as much as you want. <laughs> uh, quote from Terry at the start here. I conceived a Discworld. Josh Kirby created it. I think that's far too generous. It personally. Was a bit too generous, yeah. 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 Um, but they also argued, and there's another quote from Terry about what Josh would say when they did. Um, I'll do the pictures, you do the words. 
Like, eh, well, I mean, the words come first, don't they? I mean, I would say that I'm biased, obviously. Well, we, we both probably are. Well, you you write and draw. I just write, so I'm definitely biased. But yeah, <laughs> I am. I am just a writer who draws. I'm just modeling through. There is um, th so there is some biographical detail that's really interesting about how Josh Kirby worked, and he lived in from 1965 he until his death in I think 2001. Yeah, mm. he lived in a 400 year old Tudor rectory in That's a tiny Norfolk village of the Shelfanger. The building was, his website says, a rambling, Narnia-like place filled with books, papers, and paintings. He worked in a cramped old butler's pantry, no bigger than a cupboard. He almost always got requests for the original cover art, but refused to give any of it away. Um, and says he worked slowly and meticulously, 48 weeks to complete a single painting, including reach, reading each novel. Though he, we know he didn't do that initially. You've mentioned that before. I no, I did read that, or I think I heard it. I saw it discussed possibly on Reddit or something like that. But I mean, there are discrepancies certainly. Like we discussed some of them in mm. the early novels in terms of just like details just not being correct on the covers. But whether that's from not reading the novels or whether that's from artistic license on his part, I'm I wouldn't can stay for sure obviously we we have had a few tales so far um in the color of magic if you look on the cover uh two flower has actually got four eyes which terry says early in the book he had four eyes but then it's later revealed it's spectacles yeah. because nobody else on the disc was wearing spectacles um another one was granny weatherwax he had drawn her with warts oh, but yeah. Terry pointed out that Granny felt inferior because she didn't have any warts, right, which yeah. is we're supposed to have them. Um, and there was one um novel where a major plot point was given away on the cover and it had to be completely redrawn. And I, I don't even I, I don't even think I should bring that up in case it's about something else. Um I'll be interested. Yeah, keep keep that one in your back pocket for when we yeah. get to it because I'll be interested to know what that is. Yeah, I think like the granny one, you could forgive potentially as artistic license, but the two flower one feels like he's just skimmed the first chapter and started started painting, doesn't it? I don't know if, I mean, I, I kind of would, it's book one, you know, I'd forgive the mistake if Terry has literally said in his text she didn't feel like a real witch because she didn't have warts in. Yeah, you, you go with that. Um I mean, as any, I imagine we've got a few Discworld hardcores here who who know these things. But um, Terry adored Josh, adored his work, um, even though they did argue often um, about you know about the the work. And by the same token, I mean uh, Kirby kept making the covers. He would discuss the art concept over the phone with Terry rather than the art editor or the publisher. Mm. Um, he, though he'd send them a rough sketch for approval it was always terry he went to first in trying to uh figure out things yeah i think you get that don't you like it just shows some care like if you're in a kind of artistic relationship with somebody like if there aren't if there's no passion to it like if, if people aren't invested like if the writer and the artist aren't invested in their creations and they're then they're not going to be good you know the final product is going to be kind of pedestrian and regardless of whether you like or dislike Kirby's style 
like it's anything but pedestrian you know it's like it's a such a big swing for defenses every single time and in eric on every single page that i think you have to respect that regardless of whether it fits your personal taste or not right i mean for 48 weeks so to, to complete a single painting now i think there is I'm right and saying there's maybe 11 or 14 in eric you know so this was a this would have been a full i don't know half a year's work for kirby maybe longer and we know our like and terry was like churning out the books at that stage it probably took kirby longer to do his contribution than it took terry <laughs> 15 illustrations i'm told so um yeah and i mean they're just like i said they ha this is just such a such a vital addition um i might even give you this after i mean look at look at this i mean i i was showing this when i when i got it um, oh yeah um i remember opening this um and thinking oh right second hand copy somebody has written there you know their name and address on it but it's actually eric's name and address in yeah, yeah, yeah. It says 13 middle lane pseudopolis still planes the disc world on top of great atu in the universe space near more space <laughs> i love that more space. just look at the, the type of the font on that it's, it does it looks really real doesn't it it's great and only because it matches the eric above feist you would you would assume that like you said somebody had written that and you open with that sort of wonderful pick of rinse wind and a runner i mean kirby's work is so it it wants to capture energy it wants to capture people running about and falling over things and i mean that's why it does look very much like grotesques at points mm. he's really putting the focus on the emotion coming out in in people's expressions and in physical language yeah for sure i mean if anything i think my probably my biggest criticism over the years has just been like it's overwhelming so yeah this this exercise has been a bit bit more has opened up a bit more of an appreciation it I think, really it really it. does need i mean this is gallery stuff it it does need to be on a large scale um yeah. for it to be most effective and i'm actually coming around to your view of the kirby covers i think they both short sell terry and josh yeah yeah i think so but they I mean i mean it's easy to say that now 2023 when kind of yeah. design tastes and technology and stuff has, has all changed they're very of their time for sure whippersnappers think we know everything indeed well i guess we might as well jump into it in terms of the content yeah let's let's go um so the first 30 odd pages which i have entitled the bearded ones <laughs> when a specter causes havoc in Ankhmore pork the university chancellor summoned death for answers rincewind is mistaken for a demon and bound by would-be conqueror Eric Thursley, aged nearly 14. The demon, Vasanago, failed to monitor Eric, and Lord Astrophagal has become quite cross. Awesome. And also, I was, I was really curious to hear your pronunciation of Astrophagal, but That's that was exactly what I was thinking as well. And there's something really well done about that, about the demon names in this, where like, they all seem at first glance to be unpronounceable, but then there's actually only one seeing way to pronounce any of them. So yeah, I thought that was really a nice touch. 
Uh, so Rincewind's back. I mean, I guess we never really expected him to be gone mm. forever, did we? I guess not. Did we? I don't know. Did you? Or Oh, no, I knew he was coming back. Um, I am kind of curious as to what Terry is going to do with him now. He's gone to the point of bringing back, but that's opening a whole can of worms for you. Um, so you're not to say anything as per rules. Of course. Um, it helps that it's the, the series that I have the least coherent knowledge of as well within this world so like I'm, I'm unlikely to spoil it by accident you could still be pleasantly surprised on the rinse wind thing right it's starting to come together for me a little bit so yeah so as as, as regular listeners will recall i hadn't read sorcery it's like one of the, the handful that i hadn't read when we did it for the pod and i had read this and like looking back on like it, it carries on from Sorcery's cliffhanger, like Rincewind is in the dungeon dimensions or wherever he is. So like, I can't imagine, and I can't really remember like how I, I took that context. I know there's, there's a footnote where it's like, you know, Stan Lee style footnote where it's like, see this other book for stuff that happened. I'm like, all right, okay, fine. Just keep reading. And I guess that wouldn't have been abnormal for my reading habits back then where like you would have got books that are, out of sequence or comic books out of sequence from the library where you just accept that like you don't really know what's going on but like there's enough cool stuff and enough jokes to hold your interest so that's fine so i i suspect that that's where i would have been with this i'm pretty sure i got it from the school library so ah i mean it's not Ridsman's fault like i've done it everything to make it hard for him to endear himself to me like i've read all his books out of order like read half of them when i was a kid He's okay. running, that's why he's running. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll get into that. that that's definitely part of it. And I mean, as I, I really like that as he runs through Ankhmer Pork at the start of this novel, he's peering in every window and we get we get one of the characters from one of the previous books. And it's it's like a little tour of Ankhmer Pork. This, this spectre is, is running right. And then the, it turns out to be Rincewind and the, the death drops a beat so well yeah um it's yeah that was really satisfying it's quite a daft intro and i think we talked about it a lot with guards guards how like his you know just his his craft is coming along and, and leaps and bounds at this period in his career and feels like the world of Ankmore park has is now so well realized after guards guards that that's part of why this intro really works is because he, like you say, he's streaking through the city that feels really alive and vibrant. Um, I love it. Yeah. So just want to pick the, up the Council on... of Wizardry, uh, yeah. summoning death with the, uh, the usual right. And, and they're a bit of a, you get a bit of a resonance from them from the elucidated brethren last time. That Python-esque, sort of uh to and fro one of old men who don't have a plan yeah he finds something there because like obviously this isn't the first time we've seen the wizards do the right of ask a shente or however we're gonna say it. but this version does feel a bit more lived in and a bit more self-assured like as you say there's a bit more back and forth and that does have kind of echoes of the brethren um so it's, it's interesting to see their evolution and again but i don't want to give spoilers or whatever but like there's a revolving door so we're still in this revolving door cast of wizards which i don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say is eventually going to settle down and you can start to see like the 
the relationship dynamic, I guess, maybe start to solidify just in this little bit, which is which is interesting and not something I would have considered at the time, obviously. Um, oh, there's there's asked to go. Um, I'll cut that in for our video viewers. Um, yeah, that's cool. This is just uh, yeah, a whole nother level of um, fantasy painting. See, green skin though, like I mean, I'm I mean, this is Kirby's book. It's his decision. Green skin, sure, but like for me, like Astafigal, because I read it on Illustrated both times, is like, like when he's not trying to do his like corporate presentation of himself, he's like a a, a bloodthirster basically from Warhammer. Uh, so he's red, I guess. So in my head, he's got red skin, but Terry and Kirby decided otherwise. It's their story, so. Um, Interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna thrust this illustrated version on you, PJ. Yeah, I'm, if I'm we can meet up for our first ever drink, yeah, we must twenty years of knowing each other. Yeah, uh, I, I'm gonna give you this. And um, honestly, if you're near a library, um, if there's a library left in your vicinity, order up yourself a copy of the illustrated Eric, um, because it it was really wonderful. Um, we get uh, rinse wind. Um, arriving in the portal in Faust's, sorry, Eric's quarters. Um, that is cool. And uh, Eric is initially quite enjoyable, uh, with the, the fake beard and his mother calling out what's wrong. And Rincewind's interaction with these young characters as well is, is quite interesting, and it's something I should have made note, notes on, but I don't know the thought. Maybe even now, still hasn't fully formed, but like, yeah, maybe we'll not jump the gun. Let me ruminate on that. Yeah, I, I mean, that... there's something in so the back cover described Eric as a demonology hacker. It certainly appears that way. He has pulled Rincewind out of the dungeon dimensions or somewhere close. And we, we find out towards the end of the book that somebody else is, has been moving them about. So, it kind of leaves it a bit up in the air as to did Eric really summon Rincewind or was this this other force? Yeah, or was it part of the scheme? But even I was thinking more just in terms of like, yeah, like my issues with Rincewind as a protagonist, but like he's always at his strongest whenever he is grudgingly trying to save somebody. Mm -hmm. And and that's how he ended up in this situation initially and um, because he finally decided to do the right thing for a younger character a young man at the end of sorcery and he's now been summoned back from that situation by another young man who also needs help so yeah i don't know i find that interesting in terms of like how we get on board with Rincewind and the fact that he does have a soft spot for these kind of pathetic young dudes <laughs> Is maybe part of it, and maybe that's speaking to the audience a little bit. I don't know, but there's yeah, there's an interesting kind of comparison to be made there. Do we want to take a quick run through the characters in this first uh, spot? Go for it. Uh, your favorite death? Yes, always. Uh, with his skull buzzing with bees. <laughs> death bees. They come. I think they come back. Um, it's a funny concept. I love it. Got me. Who's a beekeeper now? So. Um. Yeah, so uh, Rincewind and Eric themselves, we've talked about Eric's parrot. Um, annoyed me. I get it. I get it. Yeah. What's the name? Yeah. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Don't know. I think it's like, 
it's one of those comedic get out of jail free cards, isn't it? Where like if you're writing comedy and you have that character that you can always rely on to just like say something inappropriate. Yeah. Like uh, I'm I'm trying to think of a good example. Is the only what's one name supposed to be swears? I think it's like when you yeah, when you can't think of the right swear word, and you're like, Oh, what what what's name? You know, like I think I I'm guessing. I don't know. But yeah, it's certainly written as an excuse not to write a bunch of swear words, for sure, like from his point of view, but in universe, because it's a pirate, it doesn't have the full vocabulary because it's not a human, I guess. Is that meant to be maybe what it is? Yeah, yeah, it could be that. What I found was the pirate's role in the story as well kept changing or his dynamic um, with Eric and Rincewind kept flitting. Yeah, yeah. It's not, I think it's possibly just because it's a shorter story. It's not as well grounded as it could be for sure. And it does, feels like a bit of a comedy button that's not threaded to the right garment. That's a good metaphor. I'm going to use that again. Um, so yeah, but and anybody who gives Rincewind a hard time though gets a, gets a little bit of a, a pass from me always. And Lord Astfigal with his... Um... His office approach to Hades. Yeah, like, <laughs> I got loads of time for this. Like, um, for some bizarre reason, like, back in the day, even when I first read this, when I was, like, 13, maybe, like, I was into Dilbert. Like, so, like, I, I, I understood yeah. this concept that, like, you know, the, the we'll corporate... That, we'll put that in our QA. The corporate office world was hell. And so that, 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 like, actually, even though I'd never worked a day in my life, obviously, at this point uh weirdly made sense to me um i think how did i how did that happen so right okay this is a diver a bit of a divergence but so i would have had hand me down calvin and hobbs books from my older brothers calvin obviously bill yeah. watterson's genius. genius so in like the early days of the internet the the cartoon syndicates you know who put the cartoons in the newspapers you could go on their website and you could just read them all I can't, and then you would probably know better than I would like what I want to say comics go go or something like that like there was a portal that just had all of them so you could just go online and read all the Calvin and Hobes and then it would have all the other big ones so like I think that's probably how I stumbled across Dilbert and even though I don't know why I find funny about it but I just like like the idea that like grown-ups were having a really bad time at work while I was having a really bad time at school I think that's probably what um some and that, yeah. Yeah, even though obviously that didn't bode particularly well for my future. No, time. no. No, <laughs> but, when, when, when you realize somebody else is having it as bad as you, it, yeah, there's no consolation in that, you know, that you're not alone. Yeah. It's just doubly worse. It should have been, but I don't know. I, I related to it for some reason. And so, yeah, so this, this, this was a reference. All the corporate office stuff were references that I shouldn't have got the first time I read it, but I sort of did. So that was interesting. Dilbert was massive. Yeah. yeah and really it's, massive for a while. It's quite interesting that like... It wasn't funny, but it was, it was massive. <laughs> well, when I was like 13, I thought it was funny anyway. <laughs> but it is interesting that they would have been roughly around the same time. Like Dilbert would have come out late 80s, early 90s when this book was coming out. So it's interesting that there was this kind of idea of sending up that kind of corporate office culture, yeah. obviously kind of in the zeitgeist around that time. Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, it's important that there was something there reflecting that. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly as you, you've got that move to to tech, to computers, to yeah. Well, um, so yeah, that was weirdly um, interesting to me. I I don't need for some for some bizarre reason. Um, uh, yeah, so we meet Vas and I go here. I'm saying that yeah, but that's how I'm saying it. Vas and I go, and the whole like council is so like the way that the hell I guess, and it it is interesting to me that they refer to it or Terry refers to it as Hades, which feels like a specific round world reference to me because that's like actual the actual name of an actual Greek god, but their disc world version of hell. So it has, so he's the king. So Astrophagal is the king. And then Vasanago and a bunch of other big demons there on the council. Is that your understanding? That was sort of my understanding. Yeah. And Vasanago dropped the ball somehow in terms of letting Eric summon Rincewind. Is that right? That's your, yeah. That's what we believe at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, 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 that's the story I've told yeah. at this point. Like, okay, yeah. Because I did, especially in terms of what's to be revealed later. I was thinking back to like how that's all set up. And I was like, I just take his word for it that it works. <laughs> I don't know what, like all the kind of setup of the the hell stuff kind of maybe went a little bit over my head. Um, but it gets us off to the races and that's what's important. So will I, will I do the next one? Yeah, yep, go first. So page 34 onwards to be ruler of the world. Rincewind, Eric, and the luggage journey above the disc and to the jungles of Central Clatch. They are initially welcomed by the Tezumen, but on meeting a condemned explorer, they learn too late their own executions are preordained. Meanwhile, the god Quezover Kurdal is summoned to Astrophagal for a disciplinary. Ordered to manifest, he does so just as the luggage disrupts the ritual sacrifice and the death god winds up as a greasy stain. So, yeah. Lots to unpack there for like 26 pages or so. So with, within that, we get um, the, the the voyage pretty much starts with Rincewind, Eric, and the luggage lifted up above the disc, um, flying up above over more pork first in the disc. And already it's kind of, and then you get to clutch. Um, and it's setting it up with that similar sort of Riding the dragon thing from um, one of the first two books, yeah. Um, and so you get the sense that you're on this this journey, and this is kind of the book falling down for me quite early because mm -hmm. it is so reminiscent of those first two books and to an extent pyramids. Yeah, yeah. Um, see what, see what in that, and we talked a lot about this in pyramids about how it sets up. One story and then goes in a completely different direction. The same thing's happening here. Yeah. Um, and it's also um uh, we talked a little bit about um how it what is being set up for Clutch is the old um explorers in a stewpot trope with yeah. the um the ignorant savages who want to sacrifice them to the amusingly titled Quetz, Quetz over Kotal. Um, so, yes, an Aztec god with a bit of a, an overcoat on. Yeah, it seems that it's like weirdly out of character, I think, for Terry. Uh, there's a couple of things. 
big things wrong with it. As you said, it's like so stereotypical um, and a bit reductive in terms of how Mesoamerican culture is portrayed. Uh, something I didn't actually realize until we just talked about it again just now that like Central Clatch as Central America, this the idea of, of Clatch, like we've been to Clatch before, just scrolled right? And we would have always assumed Clatch to have been Asia, I think, or like the Middle East plus Asia, like the, the classical idea of Asia, right? And now that Clatch also includes Central America, it just feels like it's this kind of slightly catch-all term for everything that's foreign, and that, that doesn't sit particularly well with me. Um, you know, Terry has this famous quote, where he said, you know, satire is meant to ridicule power. If you're laughing at people who are hurting, it's not satire, it's bullying and how obviously Mesoamerican culture has been treated by colonials, you know, for 400 years up till the present day is, has caused a lot of hurt, you know, and it's been orchestrated by bullies. So it feels kind of slightly opposed to Terry's values. Um, and that, that just leaves it kind of, just doesn't sit right with me, I guess the whole sequence for that reason, probably primarily, you know, yeah. but it's mercifully brief. It is. <laughs> it's it 20 is. pages. Um, I, I did have a, um, before I came on today, I had a reread of this section specifically to see if I was being a bit unfair to it. Mm. And I don't think so. I mean, there's some beautiful descriptive language, some, some amusing stuff in set up and describing the forestry and the, the lushness of it. Um, and, and Ponce de Quirm, like, you know, let, let, let's have as much fun as we want with Ponce de Quirm, you know, with the colonial character, because that's, as per Terry's own definition, like, that's where the satire should always be directed, mm. you know. Uh, so, and the, the, the reveal of how he ends up, he's this dude, you know, he's on the search for the Fountain of Youth. Uh, and then the reveal of how he died <laughs> later on is almost, is the payoff is almost worth this, but not, but not quite, you know. Yeah, I, I felt Ponce was a bit too flowery as well. We've seen, we've seen this sort of character before, and yeah, uh, more, more derivative. Um, I did like the the sort of the last bit about this. That um, well, I mean, before we even get to the last bit, we've all got Askfigal summoning Quetzal over Kotal to to give him a good ticking off and um, to. Arranging that he has to go out and apologize to people and tell them that things are gonna be different, and that was that was all kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah, all the Asphigil stuff and his relationship to this setting is it's probably its, its greatest redeeming quality. And then when he does manifest, when Quez over Kodal does manifest as this like little itty tiny yeah. little guy, and actually Asphigil's making some of the same hard criticism you just just made yeah i guess that's um, true yeah so like there's, all hail hospital yeah i mean he, he's a, a corporate leader he deserves respect <laughs> obviously um, that that's a fair point and, and there maybe is a level of self-awareness within this that you were, were maybe overlooking here but i think it doesn't necessarily excuse the whole kind of setting of it you know the, the way because i think it's okay like you know, to to do 
classical cultures and in, in a way that, that feels different to like take the piss out of the ancient Greek and the ancient Romans. Like there's just, there's no getting around that this feels different, whether it's self-aware or not, I guess, you know. Hmm. Um, yeah, I also like the luggage's entrance and because it is, well, it's it's more, it feels more to be like a, a long short story that does a novella. Yeah. Um, but then that you've got, you know, this, this big, you know, manifestation of a god who actually turns up pretty small and then it's just a, a greasy stain on the uh, the top of the pyramids. The, I mean, we sort of talk, talked a bit previously, I guess, in, in sorcery about how, how overpowered the luggage is as a, a, a character, if we can call it that. I suppose we can. And Terry's solution to that problem it's just been to lean into it, which is great, actually. <laughs> I mean, why not? You know, need your bed lying it. So the fact that the the luggage is basically just like an angry TARDIS in this story is <laughs> is quite fun, where it's just like burning burning a hole through space and time in its righteous indignation is funny in a way that I felt like they were always trying to keep it distracted or just off scene in sorcery, just so that it wouldn't break the story. I feel like he's kind of realized or he's found how to write that. Uh, and yeah, and having him come up doing like a literal reverse deus ex machina where he squishes a god at the end of the sequence. It's quite fun. So, to meet the most beautiful woman in all history. Uh, still a bit problematic. Continue. <laughs> Thousands of years ago, Eric and Rincewind got caught in the Sortian Wars. They met the Athebian hero, Levelius, and traversed the tunnel under the citadel for the daring rescue of Eleanor of Sort. That didn't go well. On the way out, Rincewind accidentally burned the city to the ground. Good times. Good times. Uh, yeah. So I think an uh, improvement. Um, I, I still wasn't a great fan, but I preferred this to the the last part. Levelius is quite a fun character. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rincewind's ancestor. Um, so, I mean, but he's like brave and cool rather than running away from things and really well, simple. So it's kind of like a reverse evolution, and you could almost say. You could. I mean, definitely in the intervening millennia, is it? I can't remember what the time scale is supposed to be. Uh, definitely Rincewind has lost something of like Lavalis's approach to danger. I think like Lavalis is definitely still a coward. But he's like weaponized cowardice to his advantage. Like he doesn't, he doesn't see the point in running away from a problem if the problem's just going to catch up with him. So he's like, right, what's the least dangerous way to solve this problem? Like, how can I get out of this situation? I just resolve it for good, hopefully without dying. So I love that. Like that ingenuity is like, it's more applied in terms of how he approaches problems, whereas Rincewind just books it every time, just runs. Yeah, good, good times with, with Levelist, definitely one of the high points. I'm, I'm just going to show this off for... Um, oh, yeah, let's see. The, there's a wonderful Josh Kirby illustration here with the uh, the Troy of sorts. Uh, and it's kind of... I don't know if you can make that out. It's, it's kind of looking backwards. Yeah. Uh, the... Eric and Rincewind are like... Looking out of its butt. The handquarters um, are on full display, yeah. And so he's taking a bit of license with that, but it, it really pays off. 
facial expression on the horse is good. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, this was a step up for me from the last section. Um, it is, and I'm glad, like, I mean, the, the portrayal of Eleanor is a bit meh, but like, we don't dwell on it, at least in the way that we did with all the kind of um, Mesoamerican stuff. Yeah, but, you've got, you've, it kind of is, is flawed in a sort of a different way. Um, I mean, but you, because you have, you have the central conceit behind it that, well, no, she's, she's not really kidnapped, not really, because she likes it where she is and she's happy enough to stay there. She's settled. So it's, you know, it's challenging this masculine narrative of coming in and saving the damsel. Well, the damsel doesn't want to be saved. Leave her alone. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that, that is. Well, it would be nice to show her a postcard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even like, there is still something I feel slightly off about. Oh, it's it's the most beautiful woman in all of history. And then when they turn up, Eric is like, he's like, ooh, he's like repulsed by her. It's like, oh, that's not cool. You know, it, 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 there is just that thing where like. Yeah, there's the, a the, it does hide behind the 14 year old boy. Yeah, the, he has that perspective and, and that's okay. But like, and we have been making progress in, in the series in terms of kind of how uh, female characters are portrayed. This felt like slight step back for me, but. Again, like you say, you have the you have it filtered through the perspective of a fourteen year old boy, so it probably does ring true. I've just remembered I've got grapes in the fridge that I was going to bring in and eat on cam. Oh man, that'd be great. great. I'll have to do that later. If you want Maybe balls. we'll put out a special bonus video. <laughs> it's just Andy eating grapes. That's <laughs> that's what the Patreons want to see. That's what they're paying. That's what they're paying the big bucks for. I get Absolutely. that set up right now. <laughs> uh, um, you've got the secret but, tunnel, the cleaning products that uh she's not using or down in the tunnel yeah the whole zordian horse scenario i love actually i like i really really love um and it still amazes me to this day like how much of my key stage three education is wrapped up in this book and like you know i probably had only been aware of the iliad for like maybe at most a year literally at most before I read this book. So it felt all kind of like, oh, cool. This is like a really funny take of this like boring, dusty thing I had to learn about in classics. And it especially blew my mind that like, it's so obvious to Terry that the horse works better as a red herring. Like obviously if there's a big ass horse outside the gates and the army is no longer there, <laughs> the army is inside the horse, goes without saying. So you have to use that as a bluff. And just that little like slight angle on things that like slightly different, that slight shift in perspective on these things that we take for granted when we read history or we read myth, uh, it's just what makes Discworld, Discworld for me. So this is one of the first really solid examples of that that I remember reading. You know, do, do you think that's it? It's that, um, I mean, we're gonna, be, we're gonna talk about this later, but that, you know, when in classical biblical stories or myth, and there's there's very obviously stated facts, and you know we accept them, and and they don't make sense. And this is maybe like where Discworld exists in that same place, you know, in comics where there's a panel A, panel B, but in between, there's this Discworld is this ma manipulating of the expected narrative. And yes. Oh, absolutely. Fun. It's the uh, the mischief, the um, the Loki of things. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The like Loki as you say. Literature. Yeah, something in that for sure. Like this idea that 
because Homer said it or Herodotus said it, that, that like, that's what happened. And then you go, actually, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be funnier if this happened? Or like, surely if you were there, if you put yourself in that position, that's not what would have happened. Because if you saw a big horse outside your city and where there used to be a big army, you'd be like, I'm not taking that horse in. I'm just going to set fire to that horse. Like, that horse has got fucking soldiers in it, obviously. <laughs> so, like, the, yeah, just challenging those, like, those stories that are so well-worn that you never question them. So just that, that act of questioning is just, just opens up so much. And, like, I mean, so, so much of the content we consume now is self-aware. But for me, back then, reading something like that as a young teenager was just mind-blowing. Right. And I know we get Rincewind interfering with history and setting a city on fire. Um, like, what do you expect when you leave all those cleaning products and like oils and stuff lying about? Actually, Somebody's going to start a fire. Health and safety, mate. You know, health and safety. Yeah. Has to be done. Nobody wants to do it, but PJ and I are here to do it. Sorry, just before we're on that, just before we leave, level this actually. The, um, the thing I bring up pretty much every every month, like the the pipe that's being laid for future stories and the time travel stuff in this, like him too much away, and some of the yeah he's leading in for those mm. who can't see, and mm. he's very very much leading in time travel fan, what? indeed. So some of those light touch concepts that are being laid in terms of like cause and effect, well, how much they can tell Lavalos about what they know about his future, that's all gonna come back. Well, those concepts are certainly going to come back in a big way and we're going to get a lot more time travel kind of down the line. But I'll say no more. That's it. Interesting. He, he physically couldn't get any closer to the camera, listeners. Um, so, yeah, so that was an interesting kind of retread, like remembering that this, the time travel elements of this were kind of the origin for some of those later stories. So I'll leave it at that. I look forward to that. Um, do you want to take us through the last of Eric's three wishes? Um, yes. So, page 98-100-ish, to live forever. Astrophagal journeys to the end of the universe and meets death, who prepares for the coming paperclips. In the beginning, Eric meets the creator with Rincewind, a chicken, and an egg cress sandwich. I agonized over how to, how to phrase chicken and egg sandwich. But... Prepares for the coming paperclips. So like that, when I read, read that out loud, like, that's a good pun. Like that's a really good pun in terms of like paperclips apocalypse. So, so what was that referencing that paperclips were one of the first objects created after the out of the, the big bang? Yeah. So, so my understanding of this theory is that instead of a big bang, all the things that routinely go missing from other universes form the matter that then kicks off the creation of a new universe i please please do write in and tell me if we're wrong or if i'm wrong about this and he's not committing either way quite sensibly but that was my reading of it because like if you've got you've got the book in front of you there because what, what i else have, I have a wonderful josh kirby thing um concept of creation that that's pretty Just spectacular actually. paper clip launching there um that's... it was i actually read this about six weeks ago uh, oh, yeah, sorry, I was I was much much delayed. Getting <laughs> <laughs> to this sneaky thing. Uh, I I honestly couldn't wait. I I think it might have even been the night we recorded Guards Guards, and I just picked this up. I just and I've never done that before. Totally fair, um, um, except for 
when I started Guards Guards. Um, if you if you have the uh, <clears throat> page there, there's, there's the paperclip and then a couple of other things kind of like a pop into existence. I think that was kind of the conceit was that they were all things that have, have been lost or they feel like lost items or whatever. But I could be wrong. And this section's only 10 pages. Well, yeah, fair point. And by the creator, like, it sort of reminded me a little bit of there's some leftover gags maybe from Strata or something like that, you know, in terms of, like, and maybe a little bit from Pyramids too, you know, like that, that kind of blue-collar tradesman kind of vernacular about, like, oh, you know, it's more than my job's worth. Not, not, not building the universe correctly. Essentially, <laughs> I have, well, I have some paper clips here, thanks to ChrisJonesWriting.com. Oh yeah. Raw matter is continually flowing into the universe in fairly developed forms, popping into existence normally in ashtrays, vases, and glove compartments. It chooses its shape to allay suspicion, and common manifestations are paper clips, the pins out of shirt packaging. The little keys for central heating radiators, marbles, bits of crayon, mysterious sections of herb chopping devices, and old Kit Bush albums. Yeah, so it's the opposite um, sorry, of what I said. Raw it's matter not... continually flowing into the universe in fully developed forms. Yeah, so it's not the things that you routinely lose. It's the things that you routinely find, but you don't know how they got there. That's um, that's So yeah, so, so that's matter, like seeping its way into the universe in a way that avoids suspicion because you find a radiator key but you never bought a radiator key like nobody has i bought a radiator key do you How know much what? Is... i bought it was three pounds what? i had to order it online and i had two and i had two for about a week and i've lost the second one and it's i disappeared into a different because he had lost his and i told him don't worry i've got a spare i've no idea where it is i've no idea if i have a radiator key or not maybe because i've reduced the probability from two to one maybe you've upset the balance one i think you upset the balance by purchasing one in the first place you you just had to wait for one to manifest that was the obvious solution there the unseen university will be looking to to bind me as we speak indeed but yeah so sorry yeah so i got i got that backwards but i (laughs) i like that kid kid bush albums are are on that list which kind of dates it obviously like everybody just has a Kate Bush album that they don't remember buying. That's very 80s, I think. Um, there's another quote here I noticed. If, if you want to live forever, you have to start at the beginning. Again, um, a bit like the horse. That's just like such an obvious in retrospect concept. Yeah. And it is, it's a bit, it's, you know, it's a good kind of monkey paw kind of wish where like you want to live forever. So that means you have to go back to the start. Yeah, I remember that being quite mind blowing at the time. Might be like, well, yeah, that's the letter, the letter of the law in terms of what you wished. So you got the the call on that famous um Jesus poem, uh footprints. Oh, yeah. When Askfigal finds footprints and sand from Rincewind and I was gonna say two floor, Eric. Oh um, two floor. And the, the magic circle in the sand. Which I didn't realise until I said it out loud an hour ago that um Circle in the sand, go round and round. It's not Belinda Carlisle's song from the late 80s. See, all, the musical references are flowing thick and fast in this one. It's interesting. Let's just stick with Kate Bush if we can. I mean, I'm, I'm open to all that, like heavy 80s cheese, to be honest. Uh, so this is where I brought up the uh, 
the rinse wind um, coin analogy. So we've got this obvious subtext by inversion. Rinse wind died, saving a sorcerer boy by intent. Now he's alive, saving a sorcerer boy who wants to be a sorcerer, or saving a boy who wants to be a sorcerer and is there by accident. Rincewind is the unlikely representation of a teacher of cautionary tales. Both he and Eric are generally submissive to the events around him. Yeah, sorry, I butchered that a bit earlier. You um, you pointed it out much more. I, I, uh, yeah, I was quite eloquent there, I think. Yeah. You were indeed very eloquent. I like my tweets, if you agree. <laughs> yeah, as, as, as well I should. So... Yeah, it's, kind of, it's kind of a complex, I find it complex to sort of uh, extend beyond that um, because it is quite it's yeah there's, there's this looks intentional to me Terry's been it, it can't been be yeah, it has to be I would agree um, but try, it's, it's really difficult to unpack yeah. you know um and like you say, I think part of part of why it is quite hard to unpack is that something you've picked up on there is that, that Rincewind and Eric remain like really reactive protagonists. So like they're not well, Rincewind has never been master of his own story, I guess. And it was really it's annoying me that I can't remember the name of the kid from Sorcery. I've been dancing around it the whole coin. recording. Coin. So that moment in sorcery where he decides basically to sacrifice himself to save coin is like this big moment where Rincewin finds agency uh, and makes a decision and does something to his own detriment but then it that's been retconned almost as immediately and that when we never thought he was dead like we, we didn't see him die he was trapped in the dungeon dimensions and it was always left open as to what could happen so the to place him then in a new story yeah, with another young male character, like you say, who's also a sorcerer or an aspiring sorcerer. But he's kind of, again, back to being his submissive self, like he's not in control of these events, feels like a bit like a step back for Rincewind to me, but I'm overthinking it because like that's literally my job. Well, yeah, it is. Stories, it is. But... I totally agree. It is a hard one to unpack. I mean, so I mean, if Rincewind is the, the, what is you know what is Rincewind teaching here? But run away, don't get involved, you know, just keep your head down. Um, they're not great life lessons, although you know they serve a lot of people very well. Um, and maybe you know you can take different readings from it. You can read that. Um, uh, Eric is perhaps trying to. Um, enable Rincewind by his 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 riskiness, his boldness, in a much less toxic way than than Coin could have affected him. Um, I don't know that we actually you know have the proof for that because you know as I said that they are both generally submissive to the events that are happening. And we don't we, we don't spend be... enough time in the story either. You know this the. It's such a short story and so much happens in it that you know we don't spend a lot of time on character stuff in the way that we might have done with say vimes but like yeah that 
that idea of, of of Eric as and I like that actually Eric is a bit more like the elucidated brethren and that like the kind of the silly artifice of civilian magic yeah as opposed to wizard magic is again kind of on display here and and that does make him a lot more relatable but like it's Rincewind's place in all that 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 definitely leaves me a little bit unsettled makes my script editor brain a bit itchy like I've, I've mentioned it so many times before that my issue with Rincewind is you know just that he's a reactive protagonist and it's just anathema to everything that I know about story as a screenwriter but like obviously there is room for it in prose especially in comedy prose and that's the world that we're in so it yeah the reveal that's about to come the reveal that we're about to discuss does make sense but it just makes it once again just feel like a passenger in his own story so is this my turn to talk about this very much um rincewind and eric go to hell yeah encounters with demons such as ergel flogga reveal a policy of imagination for torture and bureaucratic nightmares all friends reunite the luggage facilitates an escape. Astfigal finds his power challenged by Vasanago in a manner of speaking. Yeah, three three demon names in one blurb seems unfair, but then you, you did write it, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, Vasanago, he's been pulling the strings all story. Um, he doesn't like Hell's Open Plan Office idea. Um, seems fair. He's a lot of fun. Uh and tearing down these policy reviews and consultative documents, sustainability working plan rollouts. Like I've I've read my I, I, everybody I think that's read policy documents has read too many policy documents. They feel right. If you've read one, you've read too many. Absolutely. If you've read the appendices, then it's you're past the point of no return. So someone needs to rein that stuff in, and uh, Vasanago's a man, to, the demon to do it. Indeed. I think yeah. we can all thank him for that. Reminds me of The Good Place. Did you watch The Good Place? Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Great show. So this this is, I'm picturing, fast and I go, I'm picturing Ted dancing a little bit, I think. Right. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. spoiler, spoilers yeah. to anybody who hasn't watched yeah, yeah. the first season um, of The Good you, Place. It, you know, if you've not seen The Good Place, um, it's kind of a, it's a, com- of, it's as well as comedy, it's a novel for television. Uh, best yes. definition of it. And as many twists and turns, and it has a lot of a lot of textual stuff in it. Um, a lot of re- references to literature, particularly philosophy. I highly recommend it. Highly Good recommend show, it. yeah. yeah. So come about the afterlife with Ted dancing. I mean, how could you go wrong there? And it does. It's it's got like Pratchetty vibes, but maybe in more of like a Good Omens Pratchetty vibe rather than like a straight Discworld Prodigy vibe, but there's definitely overlap for sure. So yeah, that's what I'm picturing when I'm picturing all this stuff um, in terms of the uh, the policy documents and the the open plan office, I'm picturing the good place big time. Um, I I don't know if we so much need, uh, we need to see the return of Quirm de Ponce and um, the, the other characters from this story that just pop into hell. We do get a fantastic um, resolution through the luggage. This this character escape plot, which I think is one of, when you talked a bit about the luggage being this this TARDIS type 
unstoppable force. The luggage in a, a sort of a whale. Um, what's the what's the safest term for these whales? Um, I don't know. My gerbils, my new gerbils, try and have it. Don't use their whale. Um, I guess it's one of those sort of whales, but in a sort that's of how I'm picturing version. it. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, but to have the luggage just break this satanic whale by the sheer force of feet running as fast as they can and rolling out of hell that way is a perfect um yeah way to sort of break out this sort of deep stakes climax. Um I, I think this part of the book really sits so well with the first part mm. as you know back on story completely. Although yeah. the last section with the universes and paper clips and all that was was a nice it still felt on theme too. It builds, yeah. Like I think, broadly speaking, this book gets better as it goes. Yeah, I like the callbacks because, like, oh. my rigid screenwriting brain likes structure. So, like, if something's set up, it has to be paid off. So I, I like that them um, Ponce de Corm gets paid off, and I like that the luggage eventually reaches its destination. And the idea of the luggage, the luggage in a demonic hamster wheel, is funny. That's a, it's a good visual. So, yeah, so that all that pretty much works for me in a way that sort of certain elements maybe of the first half of this book kind of don't. And I think the Vasanago reveal, like it's not as good as the guards guards reveal um, in terms of the twist, but but it fits. And because we're, we're on a kind of shorter time scale here in, in terms of the length of this novel, and it's 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 not. A, it's not this complex mystery, like in the way you know, it's not a mystery that's designed to be solved by an investigator in the way that that guards guards kind of is. So like, so yeah, I think I think it, it it's pulled off pretty well, and especially the the final set piece of of Astafagol's promotion into irrelevance, like that's kind of the cherry on top, isn't it? Yeah, uh, just on the wheel thing before we leave that, I mean that's one of Kirby's pieces where he brings that. Um animation type expressions to it and everybody jammed in together and, and just, just huffing it's you know the this wheel is completely off its tracks there's also a double page spread for Aspigal when he gets his promotion and oh, nice. is surrounded by demons with brightly colored balloons all turned out to to celebrate um his Vasanago's toppling of Astafagal is, there's a mouthful, Vasanago's toppling of Astafagal through promotion is just, uh, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Really, really mindful. Um, all the descent into hell stuff as well, like that was probably one of the gaps in my classical education at the time. Like, I don't think I would have been aware of the Orpheus and Eurydice story, but I've since been to see Hades Town off Broadway, and I get it all now. Um, so what is Hades Town? Is that a musical? It's a musical about the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Yeah, ah. it's very good. Highly recommend. If you can find the original cast recording, I'm on there clapping and cheering in the background. Oh wow! We were there for the original cast recording, but it's since moved to Broadway, and it's become a much bigger show. Neil Gaiman did a, a riff of this in, um, I think it's called the Song of Orpheus, one of the Sandman books. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Um, 
Sandman special one, I believe. Um, so yeah, you would love Hades Time, man. You got you should check that out, or at least grab the soundtrack. Uh, I think it's coming to. It is coming to Europe. I don't, or maybe it's already been and gone. I'm not sure. It's a great, great play though. So yeah, I, every bit of extra classical knowledge that I've gleaned in the intervening 25 years was then put to use on this reread. So that was good. Um, yeah, so that that sort of brings us quite quite neatly to the end. And well, I mean, Ridswind arrives back on disc that's that's the real kind of payoff for this book i guess you know he's, he's at large again yeah how do we feel how do you feel i knew it was um, coming obviously but yeah i'm i'm kind of yeah i'm kind of curious yeah i do have a sort of a i i think it's it's the um the psychological imprinting thing wristwind was there in the first book um i'm two floor uh he and you're my guides so, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not quite given up on Rincewind yet. Uh, and this was an enjoyable game. He he did okay. He didn't uh, he didn't quite scale the the level half brick in a sock, but he was it was okay. It's gonna be hard to beat, yeah. And if I was being really harsh, like if you were being a super harsh critic, you would be like, oh yeah, I mean Rincewind made this great noble sacrifice at the end of sorcery and found his agency and saved a child from certain doom so like to then bring him back to life is undercuts all that but like that's just not the genre but, that we're uh, in it's does not... it, but does it people often say that about death and fiction but yeah i don't know i it's think annoying. in the world and the genre that we're in i think it's okay and it's like every if every single X-Man and every single Avenger and every single member of the Justice League can come back from death well, after no, saving the universe. Those guys die too often. You don't get a lot of deaths and resurrections in the disc. So far. So um far. <laughs> no, that's um you I'm throwing out red herrings here, obviously. <laughs> um so if if you were throwing out truths and trying to conceal them, you would say they were red herrings, wouldn't indeed. you? Indeed. It's, it's um turtles all the way down so yeah i mean obviously after however many it was what four books or whatever when we lost brunswick like there was no way like we knew even just from context of like 52 disc or sorry 42 disc world books that that wasn't going to be the end of brunswick so i don't think anybody was seriously expecting his sacrifice at the end of sorcery to be the ultimate sacrifice so it doesn't it doesn't feel like cheap Certainly not to be sitting reading it here in 2023. It doesn't feel cheap. Maybe if you were reading it in 1990, it might have felt different. Um, but no, I was, yeah, it was it was good to kind of um, put that puzzle together, you know, to read Sorcery and Eric in the right order and kind of see how that story all fits together properly. And yeah, I was broadly speaking, I was satisfied by it. Yeah, yeah. Um... Certainly not bad. Certainly not bad. I think when taken as a package with Josh Kirby's art, um, yeah, makes it a good experience. And it's short enough to go back and reread. If I'm wrong, I can go find out by myself. Quotes? Have we done quotes yet? Or bright spots or any of that kind of formatty stuff that we usually do around this time? And a couple of quotes here. Um, it's funny how the people have always respected the kind of commander who comes up with strategies like, I want 50,000 of you chappies to rush at the enemy. Whereas the more thoughtful commanders who say things like, 
Why don't we build a damn great wooden horse and then nip in at the back gate while they're all around the thing waiting for us to come out? Are considered only one step above common oaks and not the kind of person you'd lend money to. And this is because most of the first type of commander are brave men, whereas cards make far better strategies. Well, this is it, yeah. Yeah, I I preempted this. Like, I guess it's such, such a bit that I really love, and that, that quote just sums it up perfectly. I guess, you know, and there's something in that kind of, that big shadow over the, the British psyche, especially of Terry's generation of like the first and second world wars, I guess, were just like that sheer futility and loss where like, well, did we need to kill? Did 50,000 people need to die in that battle or whatever? Right, so, if you were working class, you were cannon fodder. Yeah, exactly. And that the idea that there, there are inventive, interesting ways to save lives, essentially in war, um, could have been seen as ungentlemanly or whatever. Uh, can't say exactly why, but I was doing a bit of a deep dive for a job into the the wartime SAS and particularly Paddy Main, who's a local man, one of the founders of the, the wartime SAS in the, in the African um, campaign during World War II. And the fact that, and he was like a lawyer, like he wasn't some working class dude, he was middle class, but the fact that these guys, they were the kind of lavaluses of their time and like the kind of the stuffy old officers didn't really like what they were doing or didn't really get into it. And that, that story about the formation of that unit is really, really fascinating. Uh, and there's a good drama on, on BBC iPlayer about it called SAS Rogue Heroes, which is like not in any way really based in fact, but it's, it's very good fun. And it's got a lot of good music in it as well. So if you're at all interested in that story, like I bet you didn't think that's where that was going when we were talking about the Trojan War. But uh, yeah, from the Trojans, jump over 300 and all those kind of crappy movies. Go watch something about them, Paddy Main and the SAS instead. I'll go with my second quote too. Yep, please Ask do. Fiddle had achieved in hell a particularly high brand of boredom, which is like the boredom you get, which is A, costing you money, and B, which is taking place while you should be having a nice time. Devastating, absolute devastating indictment of just like what it is to have a job as an adult, <laughs> right? And like, as as with Dilbert, like that's that's exactly the sort of thing that put me off ever having an office job, and like I never really have had a proper office job ever, so it, it kind of worked out. Well, maybe you know, <laughs> sometimes it feels like it didn't, but in the in the yeah. grand sense of things, I'm glad. But you are you're a writer, PJ, so you know you've got a desk job. Yeah, yeah. I don't have to wear a tie and I, well, I have a I had to read the occasional policy document, especially when I worked at the BBC. But like, I I don't begrudge them that stuff too much because I still got to do fun things as well. So, shouldn't complain. Um, do you want to give us your uh, absolutely? Quotes? So, my quote is also Zordian horse related, but it's a lot, it's a lot shorter. It's a lot more compact, and it's just this. There's a door. Where does it go? Stays where it is, I think. <laughs> I'm just laughing now, right? I have no idea why, right? But I vividly remember laughing out loud when I first read that. Like, I, when I was reading this book, I was like, have I read this? Have I definitely read this? And I got to that line, and I laughed out loud, and I was like, yeah, I've read this. Um, 
<laughs> so I'm still laughing. It's so it's so so silly, right? And it's apropos of literally nothing in terms of the story. Like it's a complete throwaway gag, but the wordplay is just so simple yet so unexpected. <laughs> like there's no finer example I think of of Terry's skill in like such a, a small number of words. It's a gag that like I don't think it would work on screen because like if it was delivered in dialogue, like you'd have moved on before like the penny would have dropped. You know, it's not an obvious punchline. The penny has to drop it like, oh yeah, doors don't physically move. And that's why it's funny. But, you know, you'd, you'd be on to the next line by the time that that would register with an audience. So I think it's like a really good example of how his sense of humor is so well-crafted and so well-suited for the prose medium, you know? Yeah. When and I it's think... just, it's four lines. And like, I've, I don't know how many times I've read it. Um, actually, well, I've probably only read it four or five times, but it, makes me laugh every time. I mean, if you go and watch uh, Stephen Moffat's Press Gang series, his first series, um, first commission 43 episodes. That's right, yeah. Um, which is, is classic British television. Yes. And he did this quite a lot, very short lines. Um, and actually, there's a famous sibling line to this from a feature film. And I think it's the best line in the film. It's from Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. Where do these stairs go? They go up. Yeah, and in a way, this is funnier though, I think. And I love Ghostbusters. I mean, Ghostbusters is one of my favorite films, top 10 film easily. But like, this is definitely funnier because stairs do go up, but doors don't move. And that's why I think, and that's, that, I think that's why it's funnier. But anyway, I, yeah, it's been a while since I sat and dissected a single joke over the course of an evening, but. Um, yeah, because it, it's, <laughs> you know, you think of a door as a junction. But it subverts that because it just yeah because you don't go the door doesn't go anywhere you go somewhere which is like right that feels like some matrixy stuff right there, um, yeah I don't know <laughs> well it's nerdy it's like it's a kind of a writer's it's a writer's quote I guess but um I think it sums up a lot of what makes Terry's humor special. We were gonna I was gonna discontinue the going postal section but then lo and behold just before we recorded we got a letter in from our friend Roasty Buns. Well, we just we'll do it whenever we have a letter. If we don't have a letter, we don't have to do it. We're yeah. we're our own bosses. We'll do what we like. Roasty Rice just got caught up with the podcast, and as always, thanks for taking the time to answer another of my questions. My pleasure. I think you two hitting the nail on the head, and your answer spawned an amazing quote: "There are better things to do than give your money to a Nazi." Anyway, here's a light, lighter-hearted question. I was attending a concert the other day. The Bamps Carcass. Sure, cute. Love Carcass. Uh, didn't realize they're still touring. Oh man, that really brings me back. Remember when they got back together in kind of two thousand and eight or so? Um, so Andy, if you don't they're know, they're a mutual death uh, or brutal death extreme metal band, spawned one of the best mosh pits ever. It says. So, uh, Roasty writes he was one of the highlights. He was at the bar. And there was this guy built like Andre the Giant talking to his mates about Terry Pratchett. And I told him, says Roasty, about the podcast, and he said, check us out, as he loves the idea of getting to see someone's fresh journey through Discord. Hello. Bye. Cool. Um, yeah, ho hopefully we have, I don't know how this guy's going to feel, like he's, he's tuned into the the podcast and some guy's describing him as Andre the Giant. Hey, in a, in a letter. Pretty oh, cool. He was very cool. Yeah, hopefully he'll take that in the spirit it was intended. I'll pick it up here, sure. So Roasty writes, he was around my age, mid to late 20s, and it got me thinking, if you had to sum it up, what is it about Terry Pratchett and his creative endeavours that draw people of all ages and walks of life to it? 
To my knowledge, there hasn't been many mainstream adaptations of his works in years, and yet people continue to stumble upon him. I know people who hate anything fantasy, but make an exception for Discworld. So I made some notes on this, but as I reread the question, I realize they're all the wrong notes. So let's let's hear from Andy first on that. <laughs> so obviously, I'm still figuring this out as a result of being being green. Um, my best guess, best estimate, is that it is this sort of jumping around and looking at different characters of different professions in a a city type environment. You've got the and I don't think you, your comments do go wrong because you mentioned you mentioned Python, um, and that there is that sort of strong tradition of British comedy, which is actually quite good. But we Brits are quite good at comedy, and also you've got that science fiction, science uh, fantasy thing. And what I've found being a member of a lot of SFNF franchise fandoms. Is that a lot of the fans are very po-faced. Sure. Take this stuff incredibly seriously. Um, even Marvel comics, and it's yeah, and it's, it's not meant to be taken seriously. That's not why we make this stuff. We make this stuff for play, for fun. Yeah. Um, and I think Terry imbues that. Um, in that you know, he obviously loves wordplay. He loves creating ridiculous situations. And also, I mean, also on, on that is the domestication aspect that all these fantastical things going on in stories are married with down-to-earth, real-life kitchen sink. And I think that is probably the answer as to why people from all different walks of life like Discworld. Yeah, that's it nailed. I think it's it's how grounded a lot of the situations are and it's something that you've been able to tell throughout this, the months of, of doing that is that I've always been impatient to get to those, the stories where that's more apparent, like Guards Guards, for example, where it is just like working class perspective in a fantasy world. Like in my head, that's what this world kind of is. So I think that does have a broad appeal beyond people who are in the fantasy. Um, I think it's an interesting question because like, as I've been kind of revisiting my Discworld journey through this, like growing up, I never would have considered Discworld to be particularly outside the mainstream, but like in terms of like that kind of culture, like, I mean, you could go into Virgin Megastore and you could buy a Discworld book, but like the other kind of franchises that existed in literature at that time, like your Lord of the Rings or your Marvel comics, they have now since become billion dollar franchises in a way that this world hasn't but but back then they all kind of seemed on a roughly level playing field i guess and that that's something that's only kind of changed in the intervening three decades it's a long time <laughs> so that was an interesting perspective i guess um but this this world this isn't what roti buns asked but like got to talk about it anyway um this world has resisted franchisification I think because of a lot of what we've discussed already, which is like like Rincewind as kind of the original protagonist not being particularly proactive and a lot of Terry's sense of humor working far better on the page than it does on the screen, just in terms of like his turn of phrase or the kind of puns that he uses to difficult proposition for like 
yeah, a billion dollar franchise. And I kind of like it that way. I kind of prefer it that way, I think. And you were talking about the British comedic tradition about, um, you mentioned Dad's Army, Hello, Hello. Yeah, well, I think Western there's a lot Jeeves. of, in terms of like, like it's easy for me to criticize and I'm not really criticizing saying that like Rincewind is a reactive protagonist because there is a strong comedic tradition, especially in the British comedic tradition of these kind of bumbling reactive protagonists. And, but they're all very much in that straight comedy world and that sitcom world. And yeah, the examples you give, Hello, Hello, Dad's Army, uh, Jeeves and Worcester. But I mean, even going back to the original Woodhouse stories, like Jeeves is a proactive one. He is the protagonist of all the books, but it's only the TV show that it's more of a two-hander. Um, so outside of that, outside of that kind of, you know, half an hour on a Sunday night on BBC Two, to translate that, because obviously Discworld has trolls and dwarfs and magicians and, you know, world-ending apocalypses, every other book, like you can't do that in half an hour on Sunday night on BBC Two. So like it's making that transition or that, that's what makes it hard to make that transition. And we'll talk about the watch hopefully at length down the line and in terms of why that hasn't really been possible, but I, I'm, I'm so fine with that. I think the adaptations with maybe the exception of the color of magic, like the ones we can't talk about yet. Cause you haven't read the books <laughs> like are relatively successful. Um, and we'll discuss this when we get there. So, it's not it's not this impossible task like a, this world can't be adapted to the screen but it's never going to be lord of the rings it's never going to be the marvel cinematic universe i don't think just because of the very specific nature of the sense of humor and, and how the stories are told cool. um can i just give a, a wee shout out to a resource we used that i found really interesting um josh kirby's artwork was shown at um there was a life um, you know, life gallery, not life gallery. It sounds like Josh Kirby's naked. At it. That's a bit, yeah. Um, there's those, you know, life retrospectives. Um, uh, there was one hosted in 2007 in Liverpool. Oh, wow. Um, and Peter O'Keefe put together a gallery tour, an audio. Oh. Um, now that's no longer there, but if you go to Liverpool museums. Um, and you look for the listing for the out of out of world tour pod the out of world out of our world is that it um the the Josh Kirby retrospective you will find a link to download the podcast and if you take that page run it through the wayback machine you'll get a lovely 50 minute um audio tutorial on Josh Kirby Oh, okay. um, obviously, you won't have the visuals there in front of you, but you can you can figure some of them out. There's a fair section devoted to Discworld, as you might imagine. Of course, yeah, very cool. We we've been going, we've been going and going actually, but this is um, the only final thing I kind of want to say before I let Andy do the sign offs is that as we record, it's the 14th of June, 2023, which is the International Day of Action in support of the Writers Guild of America's Writers Strike. So, as a Writers Guild of Great Britain member. I just want to extend my heartfelt solidarity to our striking comrades in the US and wish them a speedy victory in their strike. Yes, well said, Ma. Um, can you tell us anything? I'm a writer too. Um, I'm just not as famous as you. Uh, 
He's like, gonna sell I have like a piece of plastic that says my name on it. That's as famous as I am. Sorry, what was the question? Um, well, uh, I, I was going to say actually just on the way to the question, I, I have been a member of the Society of Authors and they mm. do some fantastic work um, as well as the people that collect the money for me. Oh, NLCS. <laughs> Uh, what did you say they're called? A ALCS. ALCS. Authors yes, Authors Licensing and Collection Society. And if you are an author, please go and register with the ALCS. It costs £30, which you don't pay until after the ALCS has collected it for you. So um, that's a win right there. And they would go about, they would chase, chase up what you've written if you tell them what you've written, where it is. And every year I get um uh yeah i get up some cash we get 100 or so i got 40 pounds this year 40 flip so there you go. it's it makes a difference you know yeah, absolutely. Not, yeah. you don't have to like, work to earn it they do all the work it's fantastic well you did work you did earn it so you, you better get it yeah so like all, all those organizations in support of writers it's a tough it's a tough job all over the world so you know when we're up against it like you know it's it's really important that we all stand together so it's it's great to see all the different guilds in ireland and across europe and the uk standing together in support of the double ga because you know the, the rising tide i think raises all ships in terms of of of, of how writers can kind of survive in this industry and you know, it's, it's never been easy and it's certainly not getting any easier so this is kind of these are the only tools we have at our disposal and solidarity is kind of the the main one so yeah i think we should um talk about this another time as well as now yeah this needs well, to be kept in the the air hopefully well hopefully the next time we get together the strike will be resolved but i'm not going to get my hopes up about that yeah, things are things are getting tough out there for us creatives indeed, um, indeed, so indeed, we yeah. very much uh, appreciate your your tuned in today and um joining me on my my virgin foray and pj on his learned old hand one you so can next next we're gonna do moving pictures. We're gonna do moving we're gonna do moving pictures next. I have it down off the shelf. Of there it is. Josh Kirby Corgi edition. So this is um, one that I do own, which I think I did actually buy in a, a version megastore. So I'll try and lay my hands on it and read read the hard copy. Obviously, with everything we've just discussed about screenwriting and all that, and we're gonna read a Discworld book about movies. Um Andy might struggle to get a word in edgeways. <laughs> <laughs> Next one. <laughs> I love this book. Um, it had a big impact on what I've done with my life and my career, obviously. So uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about it, and hopefully, you guys will join us for that. So you can search and you... follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. Uh, I don't know. Something happened with Guards Guards last month. In YouTube, we usually only get like three people first week. Twenty overall, we had, I think, like sixty in the first week. Oh, nice. About 110 overall. So whoever's been dropping YouTube links for us, thank you so much. Cool. Um, appreciate that. Yourself yeah. known if you've, um, or, or, you know, if you've reached us through someone else, point them out to me and um, we'll get some special badge. Yeah. We'll uh, do some shout outs at the very least. At the very least. Um, we're on pretty much every podcast platform. We're also on email. At I've never read Discworld at gmail.com. Um and that's it. Have I ever read Discworld? I have. Thanks. Good night. Goodbye. <laughs>